We're going to continue studying the Megillah today. The hateful Haman will be humiliated. That's what's going to happen in this class. We're going to study but one verse, but one Pasuk today. It's one of those verses you gloss over quickly when you're listening to the Megillah, but when you actually, like, when you unfold the Pasuk, wow, this is like an amazing verse. Chapter 6, verse 10. In the collection of verses that we learned previously, so Haman, thinking that Achashverosh is referring to him, offers this very rosy and beautiful description of how he thinks he should be treated and publicly feted and honored and having no clue that Achashverosh is A, not talking about him, and B, deeply suspicious and angry at him, thinking that, oh, he wants my crown. So Haman's words are actually enraging Achashverosh and making things a lot worse for him. Now, I want you to remember that the miracle begins when Achashverosh can't sleep. The miracle really accelerates and takes wings right now when Haman is being told to do exactly the opposite of what he had hoped for. So this is like a very miraculous verse. This is Hashem's miracles, and it's just about the humiliation of a hater. So we're going to be reading into this. The king says to Haman, Maher, rush, go quickly. Go take that garment, and the horse, just as you described it. And do so, to Mordechai the Jew, who sits in the king's portals or gates. Do not let a single thing drop. Make sure you fulfill everything you said. So what tips us off here, that there's something more than what's going on, is number one, there's this business of Maher. The king says to Haman, Maher. Now remember, he's rewarding Mordechai. This happened years ago. He didn't reward him. Why the rush suddenly? He reward him today. Today, not tomorrow. Why is there suddenly a rush order? Maher. That's the first thing that kind of demands an explanation. The next thing that has to be understood about this Pasuk is he says, he could have simply said, Ta'ase kasher dibarta. Or, Ase kasher dibarta l'mordechai Yehudi. Do as you said to Mordechai. He doesn't say do as you said. He says, I'm commanding you, Kaches halavush, go and get the wardrobe. And then the esasus, you go and get the horse. Which horse? Which wardrobe? Kasher dibarta, like you spoke of. Va'aseichen, and you should do this, L'Mordechai HaYehudi to Mordechai the Jew. Okay, we know who Mordechai is. Mordechai has been the discussion of the last couple of verses, and he's kind of an important person in the Megillah. So there isn't two Mordechais in the Megillah. So why does he have to now emphasize Mordechai HaYehudi? Previously we said Mordechai HaYehudi, he refused to bow his head, he refused to show any kind of submission. Mordechai is not being discussed now in the first person. Achashverosh is talking about him. And he's talking about the man who saved his life, not the man who had the courage and metal to stick to his faith and his principles. Why do we call Mordechai HaYehudi? And why is there an emphasis on Mordechai HaYehudi? HaYeshev B'Shar HaMelech. It's like, HaYehudi HaYeshev B'Shar HaMelech. Four descriptions for the person that we already know. This is scripture. We don't waste words. 
four words entirely superfluous. They've added nothing, it would seem, to the message that's being broadcast here. Go and do this to Mordechai. And then it says, he says, Don't let a single thing go. Do everything you said. So first he says, do everything like you said it. And then he says, don't let a single thing drop from what you said. The last I checked, if the king tells you, do exactly as you said, you do exactly as you said. You don't have to say, do exactly as you said, and by the way, I meant exactly. Don't drop anything. You said that the first time. So really, a verse that seems on the surface to be entirely simple is extremely complicated. It's uh, 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 filled with nuts and bolts that we don't need. All kinds of extra verbiage. This verse, with more than 20 words, almost 20 words, could simply have been boiled down to five simple words. That's all. Five words. The king said, do this to Mordechai. But doesn't say that. Now there is no Rashi, interestingly. Rashi says absolutely nothing. But there's a lot of Medrash, and a lot of Talmud, and a lot to be discussed. And that will be the balance of the next hour. So the Gemara, we'll start off with the Gemara in Meseches Megillah, on page 16a. The Gemara says that Achashverosh told Haman, do this to Mordechai. And then he goes on to describe which Mordechai it is. So the Gemara wants to know, why is it necessary to say, and then it says, we know who it is. The four words describing Mordechai's exact coordinates, or where you'll find him, are entirely it would seem superfluous. So the Gemara is bothered by this. The Gemara said it should just have written, So the Gemara says the Megillah is alluding to a conversation that now unfolded between Haman and between the king. Because as you know, the scripture is written in very, very few words. But they contain an enormous amount of information. You have to know how to unlock and open up the scripture, like an accordion. So there's a message here. Why did Haman have to be told exactly which Mordechai? Mordechai the Yehudi. And the one who's sitting in the, in the gate. Either, either description could have worked or no description could have been necessary. So the Gemara says, because Omar lay, as soon as Haman heard these words, he said to Achashverosh, you've got to be kidding. He said, do what? You want me to do? He says, I, I, I can't do that. I don't even know which Mordechai you're talking about. Mordechai is a very common Jewish name. It's like Moshe. Which Mordechai? Mami Mordechai. All of a sudden, Hamad doesn't know who we're talking about. <laughs> Remember, he was not part of this conversation before. He barges in on the king in the middle of the night, and he's planning to get the king's permission to hang Mordechai, but he didn't mention Mordechai's name. So it's not as if the king has had a conversation with Mordechai. The king knows Mordechai. Haman knew exactly who he's talking about, but he plays dumb all of a sudden. He says, Mordechai? Who's that? Which Mordechai? So the king says to him, Amar Lei, Achashverosh says back, Hayehudi, the Jew. So uh, he says, Amar Lei, says to Achashverosh, <laughs> Do you know how many Mordechais are amongst the Jews? It's a very common Jewish name. W would you care to be more specific? Amar Lei, Achashverosh said to him, Yeah, if you, if you insist. I'm talking about the Mordechai, Hayeshev Bishar HaMelech. I'm talking about the Mordechai who sits in the king's gates. And here the Sif Sirchon told us, tells us very interestingly, that the rule in Persia was that Jews were not exactly popular. And there were rules against Jews. There was a lot of, a lot of discrimination. 
And one of the things was that a Jew was not allowed onto the palace area. No Jews allowed. I don't know if they had a sign that said, no dogs, no Jews, no blacks. I don't know, but there was persecution. No Jews allowed, unless they had special permission. So therefore, Ahasuerus felt very comfortable that as soon as he says, Mordechai, the Jew who sits in Shah HaMelech, Haman knows exactly who he's talking about because A, there is no other Mordechai, the Jew, sitting in the king's gates. But in fact, there's no other Jew sitting in the king's gates. So he said, Mordechai, the Jew who sits in the king's gates. There is no other Jew sitting in the king's gates. No other Jew had permission. And that's the meaning of Hayehudi Hayeshev Bashar HaMelech. Now, the truth is that historically, this is not such an unusual thing. Do you know that in Tsarist Russia, it was forbidden for a Jew to have residence in St. Petersburg, the capital city, unless the Jew had special permission? And why would a Jew be granted special permission to live in the capital city? If the monarchy needed him, if he was smart or rich or capable or all of the above, then he could get special dispensation. A Jew is not allowed to spend the night. This is not in ancient times. This is just a short century and a half ago. The rule was a Jew couldn't spend the night. He couldn't get a hotel room. He wouldn't be allowed to have residence. You can be in the city, out of the city. If they catch you, you're in big trouble. So this is the way it was in many places. These were the good times. I'm not talking about the bad times when they actively killed us and persecuted us. The good times. The good times when Jews can actually be in the city, could do business, could function. But with the proverbial yellow star. Remember, you're a Jew. Your, your papers were stamped. Jidi. So Mordechai HaYehudi is different because he sits in the king's gate. How did he end up there? If you remember in the previous class, Esther gave some advice. Esther said, you know, you know, like Nebuchadnezzar uh, had a Jew. He had a Jewish advisor. You should have a Jewish advisor too. Many, many monarchs had Jewish advisors. Ahasuerus says, excellent advice. How do I find a Jew? Esther says, funny you should say that. I happen to know of a good a Jew. And she says, this is this guy Mordechai. Impeccable integrity. Okay, the king says, great, let's put him there. So the king appointed Mordechai by, by dint of Esther's urging. And in the end, Mordechai, because he was appointed there, overhears the discussions of Big Son and Seresh. And they're from Carthage or Tarsus, and they speak a very, very specific dialect of Tarsisian, which is called Punin, or Punim, and speaking this dialect that other people don't understand, unlike the, 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 the language talked in Phoenicia. Mordechai does understand it, because Carthage was a powerful city at the time. I'm not sure if it was called Carthage yet, it was a Roman, Roman name, but this is already a powerful city. Mordechai understands the language, because he was the head of Sanhedrin, and he was needed to be involved in languages because the Sanhedrin has to hear from people themselves. So Mordechai picked up on it because he sat in the king's gate. And now, Haman's told Bachashverosh, the Jew. The Jew who saved my life. The Jew who sits in the king's gates. The Jew who has dispensation. You know who I'm talking about. Haman is like flipping out. So first of all, on a very straightforward, you've already answered the question why it says the king had to say, which, which Mordechai? He said, which Mordechai? Mordechai HaYehudi, HaYeshu B'Shar HaMalach. Mordechai the Jew, which Mordechai the Jew? The one who sits in the king's gate. But that also explains why Mordechai is being honored. Then, Mordechai, Haman says to Mordechai, to, to the king, he says, Omar Lehi, Haman said, Sagile B'chad Descarta. So give him a, 
Give him a, a village. Rashi says a, a village, a, this garta is a, is a kfar. The Sefer HaOruch says it's an ear, a town, a township, a village. And why would he give him a village? Look, what is, what's going on over here? And the Gemara says, or Inami, if you don't want to give him a village, Inami Bechad Nara. Give him a, give him a river. So Rashi says, what is this, a river? I mean, a village, I understand. You give him real estate. Do you, you give him water? <laughs> the water keeps flowing. What, what does this mean? So Rashi says that this means the idea of a Nara is the concept of little meches, to be able to be a toll collector. So the king, of course, owns the whole country. And as such, the government has the right to levy taxes on the waterways and on the municipalities. And the king could give somebody the rights to collect the taxes of a particular municipality. So it's like the king is not giving him a certain amount of money, but giving him the ability to collect money. And this way the king doesn't have to collect it and then pass it on. Figure it out yourself. Do as you please. Incidentally, this is how it was in Poland. The various noblemen and squires divided the country up. They all paid taxes and tribute to the king, which is how one of the noblemen who was chosen to be the king, Poland never had a royal family, but noble, no, various families of nobility. So whoever was the king at the time would take the, the taxes from everybody else, and everybody else would have their area, their province. And they had their own little private army of mercenaries, their own little prison. They could kill people. They did it as they pleased. They were like little, little fiefdoms. As long as you remain loyal to the king and pay taxes, that was fine. So what is going on over here? Why, why, why should you... Haman says, oh, you know, give him a town. Give him a river. Which from the way Rashi explains the river, we can understand that the town means to be able to collect the taxes. What is the point here? So the Sifzichom explains, based on the Targum Sheni, which we'll take a look at soon, that Mordechai was really a poor person. There was no, not really rich rabbis. He was, poor, he was a poor Jew. He had a, he had a, he had a prominent position from a Torah perspective, but he wasn't a wealthy man. And Haman said, like, he says, Your Highness, that's like a, an embarrassment to take a pauper, you put him on a horse wearing royal wardrobe, you have him proclaim this is the person that the king wants to honor, that's what happens today, and tomorrow, tomorrow is back in the poorhouse. That makes no sense. Why don't you, why don't you make sure that that he's wealthy and take care of him. And Haman hoped, fine, let Mordechai have some money. Anyway, I'm going to kill him in a few months. And I'll take everything, it'll be mine. But in the meantime, you know, I don't have to go around parading him on a horse. So Haman's looking for a way out, and he's appealing to the king with rhyme and reason as to why this is a bad idea. In other words, this is a great idea if it was me. <laughs> but Mordechai, you've got to be kidding. Give him, give him something like that. So the king says, interesting. Interesting, that's a very interesting idea. He said, you said it would be enough for him to collect some taxes or, or some tolls. Omar Lehi, Sachashver said, great idea. So Hanami Havle, give him that too. Besides everything else you spoke about, let's decide. Give him a municipality, let him become the tax collector. Give him a waterway so he can levy a toll upon it. And besides all of this, still do what you originally said. That, says the Gemara, is the meaning of just because we're doing more now doesn't mean you should subtract from what you said. Haman's intention was, at least I shouldn't have to do this in a public way. But Ahasuerus said, no, 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 no. You have an excellent idea. You wanted to give him money? Fantastic. You're right. He shouldn't be a poor person. Give him a township. Ahasuerus has got thousands of townships. Give him a waterways. Let him collect some money. Let him have the ability to provide for himself and his family in honor. But that doesn't mean that anything gets diminished. 
So that's how the Gemara explains the conversation. And this answers a number of questions. It explains to us, number one, why it has to be it also explains to us why we have this repetition, because Haman had suggested that something else get done, and Achishverosh said, fine, do that too. But that doesn't mean you subtract. Let nothing fall by the wayside. Everything that you said, you must now do. What we didn't explain is the business of haste, the mire. What's up with the haste? The other thing we didn't really explain or have clarity in is... How did Haman end up being the one to take the horse? He never said he should take it. If you take a look back in the, in the ideas that Haman, Haman said, who, who would the king want to honor, right, in verse 7? So he says, Yeviu, they should bring. Who should bring? I don't know. The people who are in charge of the king's wardrobe. Do you remember we talked about the wardrobe that the king wore on the day of his inauguration? Do you know that the, the first lady wears a special gown that probably costs tens of thousands of dollars for the inaugural ball. Do you know that these special gowns are later put in the Smithsonian? You can go see all the gowns that the first ladies wore. This is an old idea. So the kings, when they were sworn into office, they had this special set of clothing made, but it wasn't something they wore all the time. And now it was in a museum. Now a museum is modern. That allows commoners to see it. Akashverosh had it in a special storehouse. Maybe it would get worn again. It's like, it's like a person has a wedding gown, saves the wedding gown. When are you going to wear it again? Hopefully never, but I saved the wedding gown. <laughs> you have the gown? Achashverosh had this, this, you know, these endless uh, halls of, filled with wardrobes, and he had the special wardrobe, the royal wardrobes. It was, it was a, 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 a whole facility. So Achashverosh says, you go, find that wardrobe, and then go to the stable and find my horse. Because this was the special horse. Well, as soon as he had the Targum Shane, he fills in many of the details for us. So, so this business of Haman doing this personally is not what Achashverosh said. It's not what, I mean, it's not what he said. He says, Kasher dibarta, like you said. That's not what he said. He said, let them bring. I don't know who. The king has endless servants. Let some of his servants bring. Haman wasn't planning to go get it himself. They will bring me clothes, he figured. I will be dressed by them. They will lead me. Okay, so let them lead Mordechai. Now, Achashverosh says, Maher, with great haste, you, you should take it. So the Kasha Dibarta clearly speaks about the Levush and the Sus, the wardrobe and the vehicle, but not about the actual taking. That's not Kasha Dibarta. Because he says, Kachas alavushal says, Kasher dibarta. Ve'aseichen is, and you do this. It's not Kasher dibarta. Take all those things you talked about, you go and do this for Mordechai HaYehudi. Why did that happen? How did that happen? This has to be understood. So, let me introduce you to a number of ideas, different ideas that, that the Ma'am Loyas quotes from different sources. And then I want to review the Targum Sheni. The Targum Sheni is the secondary Targum. First of all, even the regular Targum adds something here. Even the regular Targum. The regular Targum says to us that, that um, Haman said, there's lots of Mordechai's in Shushan. Omer le Haman, Sigiyin Mordechai Yehudoi is Bishushan. There are a lot of Mordechai's in Shushan. Yeah, the king said, I know. The one, Lahahu, the Sadart Esterle Sanhedrin, the one who Esther arranged his position. And this, of course, is a direct wink to the fact that Esther told Ahasuerus 
about Big Son Asheris saving Ahasuerus's life, but she did it in the name of Mordechai. So that's what the Targum adds here. So the Targum adds something which the Gemara doesn't say. The Targum says, Haman said, Omar le Haman, I came to ask you to kill the man. I came to get imperial permission for, for an execution. And now you're telling me to go and lead him around? You've got to be kidding. Please do not make this decree on me. The king said, Oh, yes, you're going to do it. And don't let anything go by. So the Targum adds another part of the conversation here. That Haman said, I don't want to do this. <laughs> I came to kill him. Now I'm leaving here, becoming his, 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 his uh, wardrobe manager. I have to bring him clothes. I have to dress him. I have to lead him in the house. Please. King said, do everything exactly as I said. So the first thing is, with regard to the haste, let's, go, let's take it from the top. The first question we asked, which we did not address yet, is the haste. He says, Maher. In haste, do this quickly. So the king did not want to delay this. Why is this? What was, what was pushing the king? Let's think back. What's gone on in the last uh, few days? Esther shows up at the king's palace. What does she ask for? He says, whatever you want, Esther. I'll give you half the kingdom. She says, yeah, I don't want half the kingdom. But I'd really like it if you come for dinner with Haman. All right, fine. Show up for dinner with Haman. And then they've had lots to drink, and he's in really good mood. The king is merry, and he says, so Esther, so what do you want? And Esther says, hmm, I'd like you to come back for dinner again. Now the king is like bursting with curiosity. He's like, what is up with this? And he's a little bit anxious. What does Esther want from me? Where is this going? There's all kinds of suspicions, which is exactly what Esther wanted, to plant all kinds of ideas in his head. So Ahasuerus starts getting crazy and suspicious and going after the people around him. She knew him. She's exploiting him. She's, she is playing him like a fiddle, and it's working. So the king has been thinking and thinking and thinking, what could Esther want? And what has the king now discovered? That Esther was instrumental in saving the king's life. And Mordechai, who she doesn't know what kind of relationship there is because she doesn't know that Esther's Jewish, she certainly doesn't know Mordechai raised or later married him, but she, she knows there's a relationship. It was Esther's idea to put Mordechai there, and it was Esther who conveyed the information. Haman says, Hashverosh says, I bet that's what she's going to ask for tonight. I bet she's going to say, you know, I saved the king's life, but it wasn't really me. And I told you who it was, and he was never rewarded. So Hashverosh thinks, uh-oh, I better take care of this before tonight. Because who knows what she'll ask for tonight. So he says to Haman, Maher, this is what the Yosef Lakach says. Yosef Lakach says, hurry and do this quickly. I need it done before tonight. So in other words, this has lingered on for a long time, but now there's a deadline looming. We have to go back for that dinner again. Today, he says, today, because this evening we have a dinner date. Today it's got to get done. So Esther comes and says, Hashverosh, so here's what I wanted. Hashverosh says, it's taken care of already. Taking care of, my dear. Now we understand the Maher. Now we understand why there's such a rush. Koidim hamishta, says Yosef Lakach. Before any of this happens. Now, of course, the nature of a person who has to honor somebody whom he hates is that he's not really going to do it with great alacrity. It's bad enough to have to honor somebody else. You want me to honor the person I hate? The person I was planning to kill? 
So Ahasuerus knows that in all likelihood, Haman will dilly-dally and get around to this someday. He'll say, Haman, did you get it done? Well, I'm working on it. I, uh, I'll today, tomorrow, maybe next year. Well, we'll get this taken care of, Your Highness. So he says, no, 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 he says. Maimon Mordechai says, Ahasuerus understood that this would be difficult for Haman. He knew that Haman had a personal enmity towards Mordechai. He says, you better move on this. And that's why he emphasizes the Maher. This needs to be done ASAP. And I want to hear back the note that everything's taken care of. Ahasuerus said in the words of the Maimon Mordechai, Make sure there's going to be no laziness whatsoever here. You quickly do this and get it done. And then he says, precisely because the Haman might be a little bit reticent to perform this commandment, that's why he says, you do it in haste and exactly as you said. Don't forget about details. I heard all the things you said. You said it. This was your idea. <laughs> Don't leave anything at the table. Everything you said, everything, make sure it gets done. Now, why does Haman have to do this? So you'll remember that Ahasuerus is very suspicious of Haman. In fact, the Alshech, he spends a lot of time in this. Alshech says, Haman and Esther seemed a little too close for Ahasuerus' comfort, which is what Esther wanted it to look like. And therefore, Haman, in Ahasuerus' eyes, now becomes circumspect of having some kind of love triangle here. He thought, this guy wanted to kill me. He's out to get me. Maybe him and Esther are plotting to get rid of me now, like I got rid of my wife, they get rid of me, and, and Esther will marry Ahasuerus, uh, Haman, and he'll become the new Ahasuerus. And then Haman, Ahasuerus started to think, why does nobody tell me about this? Last time when Big Son and Seresh, my trusted, loyal advisors, plotted against my life, I found out about it. This Mordechai guy said, I'm sure somebody knows. The only time you have a secret with two people is when the third is dead. Somebody knows about this. There's got to be somebody hanging around there. Somebody heard about it last time. Why aren't they coming forward? Hmm, he thinks. I know why. They're terrified of Haman. They think Haman's so powerful. Ahasuerus says, it's a time to bring Haman down. It's time to humble him a little. And when the people will see that Haman is the one leading Mordechai around, then they'll come forward. So Ahasuerus actually, strategically, wants to demote Haman now. He wants to make Haman look like a fool. He wants him to become Mordechai's personal dresser. He wants him to be the one who mounts Mordechai on that horse, and he wants him to be the one to lead him to the city. And that's why he says, He says, Haman, You head off and find that garment you spoke of. Get into the stable. Find the horse. Can you imagine what Haman's feeling like? Now, now, now he's going through the closet, rummaging through the Ahasuerus' closets, and next thing he's in the stable, the royal stables. And he says, all those things, and you do this, the one who's sitting Bashar HaMelech. You should be the one to perform this. And doing so, says the Alshech, the king's intention was, if there's any secrets out there, I'll find out about it now. If Haman's got designs on my life, if he and Esther are plotting, I'll know. Because you can't bring Esther down. Esther's already the queen. The queen is the queen. But Haman, the prime minister, he's too powerful. So this is political science 101. Ahasuerus realizes suddenly, I put too much power in one man's hands. I need to diversify. There needs to be a little bit, I have to raise somebody else up. 
So first of all, he's going to be raising up Mordechai, giving Mordechai honor. But he's not going to appoint Mordechai prime minister. That wouldn't be a good idea just yet, or maybe at all. But he says, I can bring Haman down, and I have the perfect way to bring Haman down. I anyways have to reward Achashverosh. That's what Esther's probably going to ask me for. So this, I can kill two birds with one stone. Instead of just honoring Mordechai, I can humble Haman. So it's on Haman's back, on Haman's humiliation, which... Uh, Mordechai will, ha will rise, Mordechai will get glory at the expense of Haman's humiliation, and if there's any secrets, now I'm going to find them out. And this says the, the Al-Sheikh, furthermore, he says, now it will become very, very clear. And he says, he says, everything is kasher dibarta, and, 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 and. It's the way you said and. What's the ve'aseh? And you'll be doing it. He says further, and lest you think, okay, fine, I'll, I'll rummage in the closet, I'll find the wardrobe, I'll bring it to Mordechai, I'll dress him, I'll, I'll set him on that horse, and then somebody else will lead him through the town. I don't have to do this publicly, at least. And Achashverosh says, that's the point, you idiot. I want you humbled publicly. And he says, and all the things you said, I know you, you're going to do what has to be done privately, you'll, you'll eat your humble bread behind closed doors, and then you'll have somebody else take Mordechai. He says, I'll top El Dover. all the things you spoke of, you're going to do. So not only will you have to go into the, to, to the, the, the closet, not only will you have to enter the stable, you yourself will have to be the one to lead him to the city. That's I'll top El Dover. Don't think that somebody else will do part of this. You're going to do it all. So now we understand a lot of what's going on here. The, the emphasis on the haste, we understand the emphasis on Haman doing this by himself, and this is very, very specific and very choreographed. Now it's interesting to note, says the Meloi HaOmer and a number of other Mepharshim, that everything about Ahasuerus was done in haste. He was, he was a person who like, he pulled the trigger. He didn't methodically think things through. He was a very impetuous person. When it came to getting, getting rid of, of Vashti, punishing Vashti, you know how he punished her? In anger, in a, in a drunken stupor. He didn't say, lock her up and I'll deal with this when I'm calm. He said, now. It's a very impetuous person. Everything was with Behilus. And the Malaya Emer says that this is to give you a little bit of insight into Ahasuerus, that he behaved foolishly. He was crazy as a fox. He was brilliant, but he behaved like a fool. He acted impetuously and didn't bother thinking things through carefully. And so, at this point, the king was filled with jealous rage. At this point, the king decided there might be a problem. He didn't think about it too much. Immediately, immediately pulled the trigger. And he says, he sees Haman's turning colors, and he says, everything, exactly as you said you would, that's exactly what you should be doing. Now, I want to introduce you to the Targum Sheni, because the Targum Sheni really has, will offer us a remarkable amount of insight. Before I go to the Targum Sheni, I just want to tell you that Rashi's interpretation of the, of the municipality or the river is about taxes. However, in the Pirkei Der Belezer, this is recorded a little bit differently. It says, Yiten le let him be given fields or vineyards, which wouldn't be taxes, but rather he'll have the ability to make money. It's like, give him a turnkey business. The point, of course, is the same. And really, we see what Haman was trying like, to, to, to disparage 
Mordechai. What did he say? He said, what did the Jews want? They don't want money. They don't want honor. They just want money, Jews. Just give him money. He's a Jew. He's Mordechai. He's a Jew. Give him money. He'll be happy. Achishverosh says, you think? Great. Give him money too. You're still going to give him honor. But his initial, his, he meant this as an act of disparagement. He wasn't like worried about the king's honor. He was finding a way out. But in doing so, he figured he could stick a knife in Mordechai in his character assassination by saying, eh, honor. We like honor. They just want money. That's all. They just want the cash. You know, they say, you take the credit, I'll take the cash. See, that's all he wants. Haman says, Achishverosh says, no problem. You can give him money too. But everything you said is going to happen. Listen to how the Targum Sheni records this entire conversation. This is, this is like mind-blowing stuff. So, the Targum Sheni says that Haman was instructed by the king, go quickly to the king's storehouses and take from there a, a royal raiments of a finest purple wool, the one that is embroidered, the one that is bejeweled and sequined, the one that has gold bells, and pomegranates hanging from it. Do you know where that comes from? It comes from this week's Torah portion. It comes from the, the me'il, the robe of the Kohen Gadol. Because you remember that Achashverosh used some of those garments. So this could either be those garments or that which was inspired by those garments. He was inspired by Beis Hamikdash garments. You see, gives you a, an insight into Achashverosh had this enormous amount of awe for the Jews. Which will, which will come to, to use in a moment. We're going to come back to this. So he says, take this, the Pama and Vizor Verimain, which is exactly the gold bells and the pomegranates, what says in the Torah about the Kohen Gadol. And he says, you'll take, the Pagam Sheni says, even though it doesn't say it in the verse explicitly, but later on we hear that Mordechai was ridden around on a horse, and what was he wearing? What was he wearing? Haman took Mordechai, he dressed him. He led him to the city. However, we get this idea that he was also wearing a crown. So Haman initially had mentioned the crown. He said, Asher Nitan, a Keser Malchus, the one who had the crown. So according to the Targum Sheni, when Hashverosh said, do exactly as you said, he said, don't only do as you said later on when you noticed that I didn't like this idea of the crown. I like that idea now, not for you. For Mordechai, put the crown on his head too. And the Targum Sheni says that he wore these royal clothes, and he says, and bring him a big crown. And we get details here. He says, bring him the crown from Medinas Mokodonia. Mokodonia in English is Macedonia. So it was like a wreath, like a Greek wreath, a gold wreath. He says, dress him in a gold wreath. Because the Macedonians had sent this as a gift to Achashverosh for the day of his inauguration. And Achashverosh wore the Macedonian gold wreath on the day of his inauguration in the manner that we see later with the Roman kings, the Roman Caesars who basically just copied the Greeks. It was a Greek idea. The wreath is a Greek idea. So he had a gold wreath now. Okay. And then he says, take also the armor and the, the beautiful helmet that had been given to me by Medinas Kush, which is usually translated as Ethiopia, but more likely Eritrea, which was once a much more powerful nation. So he says, he's talking about historical kinds of, of clothing. People didn't see Achishverosh wearing this every day. This is what he wore on the day of his inauguration. He says, the wreath, the wreath from Macedonia, 
bring the, the, the helmet, the armor, the shining armor from Eritrea. He said, bring me the clothes, the, the bejeweled clothes, the pearls, the sequins that came to me from Carthage, which is known to trade in things like this, from Tarshish. And he says, then I want you to go to the stable. And you know that there are many horses, many steeds that were unique to the king. He says, you'll take the chief steed, the number one horse. What did they call it? The triple crown winner? You take the number one horse, the one that I rode on the day that I was inaugurated, and the Targum even provides the name of the horse. You know these horses all have names for the races? American Pharaoh is like a famous one. Go figure, owned by a Jewish guy. You know what I'm talking about, right? So the horses had names. What was the name of the horse? Shifrigaz. Bring the horse named Shifrigaz, Achashverosh's beloved horse, had a name. And that's the horse that I want you to make sure Mordechai rides on. Because Shifrigaz was the one he rode on the day of his inauguration. And people would recognize that horse. People who were into steeds and, and, and stallions and horses, they, 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 they recognize horses. So they'll, they'll know. They'll know which horse that is. So Haman cannot believe the words he's hearing. He says to Achashverosh, like the Gemara told us, and like, like it brought down in the Targum, he says, but there are so many Mordechais out there. Which Mordechai do you mean? He says, oh, Mordechai the Jew, <laughs> the one who spoke well of me, the one who saved my life. Haman heard these words, and it says his face suddenly changed. He turned white like a ghost. He says his eyes began to, 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 to pop out of his head. He says his lips began to drip with bitterness. He became totally overwhelmed. He lost himself. His knees started knocking together. I'm reading to you almost verbatim from the, from the uh, Tagum, Tagum Sheni. And Haman said, but your highness, there, there are many Mordechais in the world. I, I don't know who you mean. King says, yeah, like fun, you don't know who I mean. The one who sits in the king's gates, that's one. And the king says, there are many gates. He says, yeah, yeah, many gates. The one who sits in the queen's gates, in the Shah and Nashim. So Haman says, your majesty, I hate him. I hate him, he's my enemy. He is a descendant of the enemies of my ancestors. And I have this tradition going back generations that I'm supposed to hate him. And furthermore, I, I can't do this. Let's just give him money. Buy him off. We'll give him some silver, okay? The king says, no problem. Give him the silver too. <laughs> and the king says, you know what? Make him responsible for your house too. Your compound should be given over to him as well. But the honor, don't take back. Haman says, please, I, I have ten sons. Have one of my sons do this. I, I, I don't want to do this myself. Have them run in front of the horse. The king said, excellent idea. You, your wife, and your sons will do this together. <laughs> so Haman says, please, this doesn't look right for the king, that an, or a commoner, an ordinary person, make him a, you know, give him a position first. And Haman's trying to delay, you know, until you get a position, then he gets sworn in, then he gets knighted. By that time, he'll be dead anyway. Haman says, give him, make him responsible for some kind of island. Make him the, the, the Duke of Edinburgh. I don't know. Make, give, give him a title or something. You can't just have a commoner ride on the king's horse and get that kind of honor. Ahasuerus says, great idea. Choose whatever island you want. Make it the Duke of whoever, but you put him on that horse now and you get him, get him riding now. 
Haman says, please, your highness, this doesn't look good for you. It doesn't look good for me. It looks terrible for all of us. Everybody knows us. We're world famous. Nobody knows who this guy is. King says, great, make him world famous too. There's coins that were minted with Ahasuerus. Haman even had coins minted of himself. He says, fine, mint coins with Ahasuerus, but Mordecai as well. And he says, listen here, you. This man spoke good about me, and it's thanks to him that I'm alive. And therefore, all of your greatness comes from him too. Did you realize that? Because if I wouldn't be alive, you wouldn't be around. Nobody else would have taken you in the way I did. So, so Haman says, your highness, I, 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 I paid for him already. He's my servant. I'm supposed to kill them all. We have letters that have gone out to the whole country saying that Jews are supposed to be killed. And now you want to honor him? Ahasuerus says, you're right. Bring back all the letters. Let them not be killed. <laughs> Everything Haman said, Doug David. You said the entire plot is already over? Esther doesn't even know this yet. This worked better than she could have imagined. Ahasuerus has already done away with everything. By the time she gets to the party, and by the time she gets, he says, who? who? Who's your people? Your people are so who? Says, Which guy? Him. Him. I finished with him a long time ago, Ahasuerus said. It wasn't even such a big deal that he had him sent to the gallows. It was, it was this is follow-up. Follow this already happened the day before, unbeknownst to Esther. So the king says, bring all the books home. Forget it. Cancel the decree. I canceled the decree as of now. And he says, go do everything that you already said. Forget all the extra stuff I added. All the things you said, not one thing should be discounted because of all the other good things that are being done. So when you understand what's going on behind this verse, right? You see at this verse, this is not just about harmonic humiliation. This is not about a hater being demoted. This is actually, this is the miracle. It's just the ultimate venahapahu. Haman's coming down has seized the fortune of Mordechai and the Jewish people rise. And it all happens in one verse. This is the verse that everything hinges on. This is, so to speak, where everything turns. I'll give you some uh, more interesting salient details that the Mamloyas quotes, and then we'll see an amazing mystical interpretation of, of everything we just learned. So Haman heard all of these things, and Haman was, was uh, absolutely flabbergasted. And he says... He says, this, 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 this can't be right. Ahasuerus says, it can't be right. You owe him everything. This is ultimately the, most, the thing which is most right, more than anything else. So the big question that remains for us, and this really is the big question. Didn't Ahasuerus hate the Jews too? How did he become so philo-Semitic? So when he found that his wife was Jewish, okay, fine, he became a friend of the Jews. But we read earlier, a number of times, from a number of different sources, that Ahasuerus was a bigger anti-Semite than Haman. And when Haman offered the money to kill the Jews, Ahasuerus said, <laughs> keep your money, I'm happy to get rid of the Jews anyway. How did I have this, this immediate turnaround? I, I understand that the king decided it was time to humble the Haman, but raise the Jews? Why, why, why is he canceling the decrees? How did this happen? So the Yadr's Dvash suggests the most incredible explanation. The Yadr's Dvash says, it is true that as we've learned, Ahasuerus hated the Jews more than Haman. However, however, you have to understand why he hated the Jews. What was the reason for his anti-Semitism? And the Yadr's Dvash maintains that the anti-Semitism between Haman and between Ahasuerus but worlds apart. Worlds apart. Haman, he said, hated the Jews because he's Amalek. 
he hated the Jews because he hated the Jews. He couldn't stand that a Jew should exist. Ahasuerus, on the other hand, he was afraid of the Jews. He thought, as long as there are Jews, my monarchy is threatened. Because they went into Galut for 70 years. And then their God is supposed to bring them back to Israel. And when they go back to Israel, I ultimately am the heir of Babylon. Babylon destroyed Jerusalem. If Jerusalem rises again, then Babylon falls. He was convinced that his own personal fortunes were tied to the Jews. He said, if I get rid of the Jews, I cement my position. So his hatred was not a, a broad anti-Semitism. His hatred was a personal hatred. And furthermore, his astrologers, and this is so interesting, we see this link between the Pharaoh and Ahasuerus. They were still living in antiquity. They still believed in astrologers. And, and, and there is truth to it. The astrologers had foretold that a Jewish king would someday sit in Ahasuerus' throne. It was true. A Jewish man did ultimately take Ahasuerus' throne. You know what his name was? His name is Darius. Daryovish. You know who he was? Ahasuerus' son. But his mother was Jewish. So he was technically Jewish. Darius II, the ruler of Media and Persia, was Jewish, a lapsed Jew, a Jew who was more interested in being a Persian monarch than being an observant Jew, even though he had a mother at Sadiqus like Esther. But nonetheless, the fact is, it was true. Someday, a Jew replaced Ahasuerus. This was his fear. You know those monsters in, uh, in Virginia who are chanting, Jews will not replace us? This is what Ahasuerus' anti-Semitism was. So, 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 Haman, he's the Islamo-Nazi. He can't stand that a Jew should be alive. Ahasuerus like the neo-Nazi. He was on the right. The right and the left, they came together here. He wanted the Jews finished, Haman. No more Jews in the world. Ahasuerus said, I can't have my base threatened. I'm being, as long as they're alive, I won't be, I won't be okay. So, in other words, he said, get rid of the Jews because they'll replace, they will replace me. Now, Ahasuerus, ever the wily fellow, thinks to himself, okay, I have a solution now. There is this proverb or idea that if something is decreed, you can fulfill it in some way. It has to be fulfilled in some way. He says, I have an idea. Mordechai will be like king for a day. And that way it's fulfilled. Make him king for a day. He says, put the crown on his head. Haman, he was terrified to have the crown on Haman's head. He thought Haman was going to take his throne. He knew Mordechai is not going to be able to take his throne. He said, make a Jew king for a day. By the way, there was, in later, much later on in history, a man who was king of Poland for a day. He was a Jew. His name was Shaul Val, or Shaul Katznellenberger. He was king for a day. What happened? Poland was a mighty, mighty empire at the time. And the rule in Poland was there was no royal family, so when a king died, all the noblemen would come together, and they were not allowed to leave until they figured, finished fighting and appointed one of them as the king. And it so happened that once... They were fighting and fighting and fighting, and they couldn't come to a re resolution, couldn't come to an agreement. And it was like the wee hours of the morning, and they were exhausted. But the law in the land is you can't leave. And they desperately wanted to go to sleep. So finally somebody proposed an idea. He said, I have an idea. I have a Jewish accountant. He's very trustworthy. He'll never mess around. Let's make him king just for a day. And tomorrow night we'll come back and we'll figure this out. He said, it's an excellent idea. His name was Shol, Shol Katznellenberger. And Shaul Val was appointed king of Poland for a day. 
And during that one day he was there, he passed a number of very important rules that enabled Jews to live in peace and security in Poland. So as good as things were in Poland, and they were pretty good. They got even better, thanks to Scholl's one day in the office. And then the next night they got together and they, they fought it out and they, they, they did elect the king. So Mordechai was like king for a day. So make him king for a day. He's going to ride a royal horse. He's going to wear inaugural clothes. He's going to have the wreath, the crown. And they're going to say, this is the man, this is the king. And this way, Achishver says, now I'm done. Now I've taken care of my fortunes. What do I care about the Jews? The Jews can live in peace then. I don't need to kill them anymore. My fear was they'll replace me. They're not replacing me anymore. No problem. Haman still hates. He's the hater. He, he's not worried about his position. He says, I don't care what happens to me. He's a suicide bomber. He says, I don't care about me. The Jew has got to die. The Jew has got to go. By hook or by crook. So, you know, it's like, uh, <laughs> have it your way. Haman is going to go. But not take any Jews with him, thank God. But he, Haman, his hate is insatiable. Whereas Achashverosh actually has a rhyme and reason to his hate. That's what, that's what the Yaris Devash says, which is... <laughs> Pretty, pretty amazing. He says, Yasem Kisri place, place a, a crown on his head. This evil decree against me will become nullified. Begdulazu, this greatness unto Mardachai. Therefore, when Haman said, Your Majesty, we shouldn't give him so much honor, the king flew into a rage. He says, You idiot! By not giving him honor, if you subtract from his honor, you put me in danger. Then a Jew may someday replace me. And that's why he says, I'll top it, Mikodover. Don't, don't leave a single detail out. Because Achashverosh in his mind thought, these details are necessary to secure my future. And that's why he said, bring the crown out too. Bring that first horse, the horse I rode out, bring everything. It should be like an inauguration. And then he says, then I'm safe. The Ma'amloyas quotes the Targum who said, the king screamed, practically screamed at Haman on his way out in a, in, a, in, a, in, a, in a rage. He said, don't you mess a single thing. He says, that's how the, the words of Baal Tapel Dover, this was, this was his final words. As Haman's on the way out, he's screaming at him, and don't leave a single thing out. That's why he repeats it a second time. Now there is another very interesting interpretation of, of, of Haman's kind of remonstrating with the king. And the king and the king's response, which I want to share with you. And then once, once we, we, we go through this, then I'm going to we go to some beautiful mystical interpretation. So this is attributed, this is what we're going to talk about now, is attributed to Rabbeinu Yom Tev Tzalan, or Tzalan. And uh, Ba'amloyz quotes it and augments it slightly. And he says like this, Achashverosh at this point wanted to humble Haman. No question about it. He said it's time to, make, to humble this guy. He's too, he's too big for himself. Too big for himself. So he says, the, you do this honor for Mordechai. Which Mordechai? He said, the Mordechai who sits in the king's palace that you're angry at because he's going to bow to you. Because if you remember, it says, What did Haman come home and say? Whenever I see Mordechai sitting in the king's palace, I'm filled with rage. I can't take it. The king knew this. So he said, choke on it. The Jew, the one who sits in the king's palace, is under my protection. This is my honor now. In other words, it doesn't matter what your personal feelings are. Now, how could the king argue with Mordechai? This doesn't make, with the Haman, with Hachashverosh. With He's just a prime minister. He can't do whatever he wants. How do you have the chutzpah? The king told him to do something, and, and every time he opened his mouth, it got worse. He should have just 
shut up while he was ahead. Done whatever he was told. Why, 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 what was he thinking? Well, Haman was a smart guy. Haman said like this, according to the Yomtev. He says, Your Majesty, this is not what you spoke of. You spoke of who should we honor somebody who the king loves. So that was my idea. But you're speaking about simply repaying somebody for doing something good. He says, I didn't, I wasn't talking about repayment. I was just talking about nice stuff. If you're talking about repayment, repayment should be money, monetary. Repay him. He saved your life. Pay him for it. Haman said this is about priyas choiv. It's about paying a debt. It's not about just giving a gift or honor. I had no idea. I said, in other words, Haman would say like, oh, I didn't know this was to repay somebody for doing something good to you. The king had said to me, Ma what should we do with the person that the king, the king wants his honor. Mordechai, oh, he said, funny you say that. Okay, he did something good. I didn't know that. Well, then let's repay him for what he did that was good. Everything's got a price tag on it. Everybody's got a price. So let's just figure out what the price is. And that's why he said, maybe it's, maybe it's in fields, maybe it's in vineyards, give him a township, provide him with a city, give him a waterway, whatever it is, all the different things that, 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 that our sages talk about. That, and, that, and that'll be fine. The king says, you know what? That's fine. You can pay him too, but I still want him to be honored. And the king has this double idea. Number one, he wants to bring Haman down. Number two, he wants the person who saved his life to be honored, because what's the king thinking? Now people will see that if you save the king's life, you don't only get repaid, you also get honored. So then somebody will be motivated. If there's a secret deal between Haman and Esther, somebody's going to be motivated now to tell and fess up. So Ahasuerus is trying to create the most magical experience for Mordechai so that if there's a problem in the, in the future, then in fact, we should have such an amazing reward beyond a reward that somebody will be motivated to go, come forward and bring the information. It's like, you know, when they bring information, they say there's like a, such and such amount of money which is offered reward money. So this is not just reward money, it's reward, honor, and glory. And all of this to enable and ensure that Achashverosh will be able to get whatever information out there is necessary in case his life is being threatened again. And we will conclude with the most magical, mystical, spiritual interpretation. Now, this is not really a question, but just like, I don't know, like a comment. So this is such a miraculous verse. It's such an amazing miracle, right? But it's, it's so pedestrian. It's like just Haman getting squashed. It's all about Haman's humiliation. There's no like... Where's God here? Where's the, where's the miracle? Where's the energy? Where's the positivity? It's like a comment, not a question. And the question could still be asked, what's with the haste? Especially on a deeper level, not just on a pshat level, the fact that Maher, this comes along Maher, what's with the haste? So there's a remarkable mimer, a Hasidic discourse, a very long Hasidic discourse from the second Rebbe of Chabad, the Mittler Rebbe. And the Mittler Rebbe, in chapter 92 of this Mimer. He says, we need to understand the business of haste. And he says, in order to understand the business of haste, I want to share with you something exceptional that is written about in Kisvi HaRizal, about the words, Es Halavush, the Es Hasus. 
The prize is a wardrobe and a horse. And it gets repeated. Haman speaks about it. Achishverosh tells Haman. Haman takes it. And we have multiple times in the Megillah the words, Es halavush ve'es hasus. So this, the origin of what we're, I'm about to share with you, is from Priyetz Chaim, which is the writings of the Arizal, in something called Shar HaPurim. And it's in Portal 19, Chapter 6. It's also brought down in Mishnah's Chasidim in Chapter 7. And it's also, there's a mimer from the Alter Rebbe. The Alter Rebbe brings down the mimer as well. And it's a code. It's a Bible code. And the Bible code is Es Halavush. The S Hasus spells Aleph, Hey, Vav, Hey. What's Aleph, Hey, Vav, Hey? So this is, I'm going to pronounce it, mispronounce it purposely, Akva. I'm not pronouncing the Hey. This is a famous name of Hashem, a name of God. And this name of God appears right in the beginning of the Torah. It's always in code. This name is never written openly. It's always a Bible code. And it's found in the Pasuk, Bereshus Bara Elikim, in the beginning, the Lord created, Es Hashamayim Ve'es Ha'aretz, Aleph Vav Hey Vav. The name Akva appears in the beginning of the Torah and shows up at strange junctures throughout the Torah. The primary appearance is here in Megillus Esther. And it's talking about a horse and a wardrobe. So what does that have to do? Okay, heaven and earth is a big deal. I get that. God doesn't mind having his name encoded into heaven and earth. Why did God encode his name into a horse, a, a horse and, a, and a jacket? A royal jacket. A beautiful wardrobe. A wardrobe. What's going on here? So the Mittler Rebbe, first quoting from the Priyat Chaim, says, the Priyat Chaim, it says about this name of Akva, that it has the numeric equivalent of 17, the gematria of tov, which means good. And this is not just a question of what the world was destined to be, not only that God created a world that was good, but this is actually the intention of the world. Sorry, not only what the world is, that God said it was good, but the intention of the world, including all the concealment and all the difficulties and all the klipa, all the, all the horrendous things that are happening, the ultimate mission and purpose of it all is we should reach goodness. That's the name Akva. This is so far all in the writings of the Arizo. But the Mitle Rebbe explains this. Like many things in Kabbalah, it sounds like alphabet soup, mumbo-jumbo. So the horse and the wardrobe is heaven and earth, and it's great. Wow, that's so profound. I have no clue what I just said. I have no idea why a horse and a wardrobe, even if it's a royal wardrobe, I have no idea how that became heaven and earth, or why that's good. I certainly don't know why the, the, the verse that encapsulates in some ways the miracle of Purim more so than any other, and has God's name hidden into it, has the primary feature of a horse and a wardrobe. So the Mittler Rebbe says, allow me to explain it to you. Do you know that when we talk about the heavens in Torah literature, the heavens are sometimes referred to as a garment. Did you know that? Yeah. The heavens are referred to as a garment, and the Middle Rebbe says that's because the heavens almost like cloak earth. Planet earth is surrounded by, like a garment or a garment bag surrounds something. The, 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 the world we live in is cloaked 
was surrounded by the heavens. And here's something you may find very interesting. We say, Oita Ur Kesalma, God wears light like a tunic. Noite Shomayim Kayuria, He dresses or wraps himself in the heavens like a curtain or like a shawl. This is a verse that comes from Tehillim, Psalm 104. Psalm 104, the second verse. What you probably don't know is that when you put on a talus in the morning, I'm saying you because you're ladies, and you put on a talus in the morning, the verse that you recite is, Erta Erka Salma, Naita Shomayim Kayiriya. So the talus is the mitzvah we wear, and the mitzvah we wear, the one that surrounds us, not like tefillin, which is specific, has to be sized for you. The talus is something that wraps, you wrap a person in the talus. In fact, the idea of atifa in the talus is called to wrap. So you wrap in a talus, this is the idea of the heavens. Hashem wraps himself in the heavens, so to speak. So we see a very interesting corollary, says the Mitlanebbe, between heaven and between wardrobe. The heavens are metaphorized as a garment. Okay, this is getting very interesting. The Mitlanebbe explains this, incidentally, in great detail. And he says that the idea of a lavush in Kabbalistic terminology represents something called makif. There is an atmospheric divine reality, and then there is mimale, that which surrounds us, and then that which is, relates to us in a personal way. So, for example, makif is an environment that a person's in. That's the makif, the air a person breathes, the, the kind of people around him. People can say, I'm in a toxic environment. I'm surrounded by negativity. It's freezing here. It's warm. It's friendly. So all in, these are all atmospheric things. Atmospheric things are not personal. A person would walk into an environment that's very cold and austere. He says, oh, they, they have something against me. Well, why do they have it against you? Well, this environment is cold and austere. It's cold and austere for everybody. It's not you. Now, if they serve you something which is, makes you feel uncomfortable, then maybe they have something against you. Because they want you to eat. But the environment is an atmospheric thing. So this is, in, in the metaphor of human ability or faculty, the concept of will is called an atmospheric thing. Because will or pleasure, the thing that drives people, drives all of a person. It's not limited to the head or to the hands or to the heart. Ideas, thought, contemplation is in the head. Feelings, emotions, relation is in the heart. Action, doing is in the hands. But, but will is when a person wills it or wants it, all of him wants it. A person's hungry, he doesn't say my mouth wants to eat. People say my stomach is growling, but that's true, something my stomach does growl, but really, who's hungry? Not your stomach, who's hungry? I want to eat, I'm hungry, not my stomach is hungry. So this idea of will is all-encompassing. And the Mithlet Rebbe says there are two kinds of garments. There are garments that are all-encompassing, like makif, and then there are the idea of the garments which are made to fit, which if the, the slacks, the pants, the skirt, the jacket, the blouse, the shirt is too big, you're swimming in it. It doesn't fit you. It's got to be tailored to size. And then we get into more, that's, that's makif akarav, that's very close, that's things that, that hug me close, but then we get into mimala. Mimala means I'm actually able to bring it down, things that I ingest. So I could be listening to a speech or a sermon and be overwhelmed by the general sentiment, but I can't tell you a word I heard. 
Why? Because it just overwhelms me. It's a makif thing. I was, as a boy, once at the Siem Harambam, the big Siem Harambam in Manhattan, and the famous Rabbi Soloveitchik from Chicago, Rabbi Aaron Soloveitchik, spoke for like an hour and a half. And I wasn't stupid, but I was 17 years old, and I couldn't, at some point, I could not follow what he was saying. It was just like, it was too deep, too profound. It was this thesis that wrapped together multiple rulings in the Rambam, establishing a, a, a Maimonidean perspective. I lost him. But here's what I did know. I knew I was in the presence of genius and brilliance. I knew what he was saying was brilliant, even though I couldn't repeat a word of it over. So that's like atmospheric. I was, it, was, it was overwhelming. It washed over me. Okay, but now, if, you want to, if I want to ingest it, if I go back and listen to that now, I'm sure I'll be able to understand it. That's, I can, and when you understand something, you understand it in your own personal way. So things have to be conveyed. How do we convey ideas? Words. Excellent. You can have a thought, a very profound thought. It takes a moment, a flash. And how many words will it take for you to explain that idea? Depends to who. It also depends who you are, how well you can explain things. It could, it could take many words, many frames, many syntaxes, many metaphors, many parables. You can use a lot of words to take an idea and convey it. That in the language of Kabbalah, is called horses. The horse is a means of transportation. Ideas are carried out through letters. The letters are like God's horses. All the king's horses and all the king's men are God's letters. Letters. The letters that Hashem created the world with are what actually sustains things. The stone is sustained through the energy of Aleph, Beis, and Nun. And the wood is sustained through the iron and the tzaddik. As Al-Tarebbe explains that the words or letters represent energy and that's how God's creative prowess is expressed into the actual minutia. So the heavens are akin to the concept of the atmosphere or the garment that wraps you. And the, the horse, says the Mithla Rebbe, is akin to the concept of words or letters or actualization, which is the of earth. That's heaven and earth. So the Mithla Rebbe explains this Lurianic idea, explaining to us that the idea of this hidden name of God, of Akve, which is Esa Shemayim Vesa Oretz, ultimately gets translated into Es Halavush Ves Hasus. And this has to happen in haste. You have to carry it out. And that's why Achashver said, carry it out. It's as if this is HaKadosh Baruch Hu saying, the great, big, miraculous energy, it's time for it to get carried out. And when it gets carried out, it says, Ad Hashem's words, once they're set forth, they go with tremendous alacrity and speed. And that's how there's not only a story of an Ahapahu, but there's a story of Mehera, with great haste. It happened, it happened in haste, in tremendous haste. So the haste has a positive side to it, and this helps us appreciate and understand how ultimately, when Achashverosh screams at Haman, it is also an echoing of a divine blessing to the Jewish people. Now it's time for things to become good. The shame Akve has become animated and activated. The heavens and the earth are distilled into the garment, the wardrobe, and the horse. And this becomes the sign of Hashem's bracha, of Hashem's protection, of Hashem's salvation, now being unfolded in real time for all of us. And this was, this, with this we conclude our study of Pasuk Yud.